Shall we pray? Dear Lord, make me a nail upon the wall, fastened securely in its place. Then from this thing so common and so small, hang a bright picture of thy face. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our topic at this hour, friends, has to do with a home that was shattered because Sheila, as we call her, it's a substitute name, because Sheila overlooked one outstanding secret of home harmony. And that one outstanding secret is humility. What does that have to do with the worship of Jesus Christ? What does that have to do with our relationship to the Lord? You see, all of the worship and the science of worship teaches us not merely our relationship toward our Lord, but also the same relationship on a smaller scale toward each other. Like the psalmist said in the 96th Psalm in the ninth verse, come, let us worship the Lord. Let us bow down. The science of worship involves the attitude of humbling myself, not merely before the Lord, but humbling myself before others. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I hasten to add this. It does not mean that in humbling ourselves we have to become a worm. Not at all. It rather means that in humbling ourselves we show this humility by respecting others. Notice two or three texts of Scripture. 1 Peter 2.17, honor all men. That means respect everybody. So it doesn't mean get down in the earth like an earthworm and crawl among the dirt. No, it doesn't mean that. You and I are children of God. We're sons and daughters of God. So humility means nothing of the kind. It means, rather, that we respect others. And according to uh, Philippians 2, 3, it says, esteeming other better than ourselves. Better is comparative of good. You can't esteem another person better unless you esteem yourself as good. Jesus is the top. He is the highest level. And Jesus came to this world, and when he washed his disciples' feet, he said, I place it in a paraphrased term. He said, it in no way detracts from my dignity that I have bowed down and washed your feet. I am still your Lord and Master. I'm not groveling in the earth and in the dust in washing your feet. I'm merely showing that Christianity is service. Christianity is respect for all of God's children. Jesus Christ shed his blood for every son and daughter of humanity. He placed an infinite value on every human soul. When I respect every child of God, every child, every creature, every intelligent creature, I'm respecting the blood of Jesus Christ that flowed on Calvary. It was an infinite sacrifice. His life, his blood, his death, and it would have been offered for one soul and that soul could be the individual whom we are tempted to disrespect, whom we are tempted to belittle. And this is part of the science of worship. You see, as we worship God, 
the attitude, the philosophy that we have Godward. We have, in an appropriate manner, earthward. Can you imagine Philippians 2, 3? This text being penned by the apostle Paul who said, let, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But he said, in humility, let each esteem other better than himself. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. I don't believe that you and I have a right to choose what part of the Bible we'll receive. Do you? We say, well, I, I, I don't like this part because I don't want to humble myself before anybody. <laughs> but Jesus humbled himself. And in Philippians 2, 5 to 9, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow. Praise the Lord for our example. What do you say? That is Christ. We're conducting, before I tell you about Sheila, I want you to notice how the Bible develops this, this attitude of reverence and respect. First of all, to God in the highest then to others better than ourselves, and then ourselves. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. I can't love my neighbor unless I love myself. I cannot respect my neighbor unless I respect myself, you see. So there's no respect, disrespect to self in respecting others. I'm thinking of a lady. She was one of those wonderful, wonderful mothers-in-law. <laughs> you know, our mothers-in-law have had a have had a pretty bad reputation, haven't they? Even the good ones, and there are lots of good ones, probably many more good ones than evil ones. But this particular mother-in-law was the mother of a minister friend of mine. And every time she would come over to his house, she would tell her daughter-in-law exactly what to do. But that wasn't all. As she would tell her daughter-in-law what to do, she was just dripping with sanctimony. Oh, she told her daughter-in-law what a beautiful creature she herself was. How close to the Lord she walked. How rich was her fellowship with the Lord and all the things that other people should do. And her son came to me and he said, now that you're going to hold a series of meetings in my church, he said, I wonder if we couldn't pray for my mother. He said, she's so sanctimonious as though she had arrived on a higher scale than most other people. And one of the sermons that I preached at that place, and I prayed for, to the Lord for the Holy Spirit, one of the sermons was about humility. Sabbath-keeping means that the creature bows in respect to his maker, but it also means that the creature who bows in respect to his maker as the, in the highest respects all of God's creatures. And as I tried to develop through the aid of the Holy Spirit the importance of Sabbath-keeping Christians being very humble in our relationship to each other, I made a call. 
I sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit that night. My friends, I want to tell you, I believe angels just filled that auditorium. I was praying earnestly for this dear woman who meant very well. You know, I've often said, there are a lot of people that mean well. They're just mean, <laughs> you know. And I was praying because this man had suffered intensely from his, from his spiritual, quote-unquote, from his spiritual mother. His wife had suffered more from her spiritual, quote-unquote, mother-in-law. And as we concluded the message of that evening, I felt impressed to invite those who felt that they had not represented the Sabbath-keeping attitude of humility toward our fellow creatures, would they like to come to the altar? And as I stood there, of all things, this dear woman started making her way down the aisle. I was so happy to see her coming down that aisle that I, I just couldn't stay at the front. I just walked down the aisle halfway down. I clasped her hand, and she said, Pastor Kuhn, after hearing this message on humility, I have to admit, I have never once kept the Holy Sabbath day. Oh, yes, she'd kept it. The Jews had kept it. They had kept it in theory, but she began to realize that the keeping of the holy day is a philosophy for a whole life. The humility by which we bow before the Lord in worship, the humility that accepts the Lordship of Christ regarding the day that he says, rather than the day that I choose, that same humility is to extend to all. And she was weeping, the tears just rolling down her cheeks. She had become a new creature in Christ Jesus. My friends, it is one thing for men and women to consent to God's decision of what day we should keep, and that's good. Really, that is for us to say, I accept the lordship of Jesus Christ. Sabbath-keeping is accepting his lordship. It's keeping the day he tells us to, but that's only part of it. If I accept his lordship, he said, if I, your lord and master, have bowed down and bathed your feet, if I have taken this humble attitude toward my errant disciples, you ought to take the same attitude. This is the science of worship. Thank God for it. Well, Sheila, Sheila came to us and related to us her, her experience. In those days, we used to give people an hour, an hour and a half, perhaps. And they would relate their whole experience. Even that was briefly done, they figured. She told us how she was reared in a Christian home. Her parents were very strict. They dealt with a theory, with a theory of the law. But the trouble was, while they dealt with a theory of the law, and while they were very, very, very conscientious about the do's and don'ts, they had never learned the very basis of the law. Jesus said, on two commandments hang all, hangs all the law and the prophets, and those are love, love to God and love to man. Her parents didn't show the love. They were so busy trying to work their way into heaven, you see, 
I mustn't do this, I mustn't do this, I mustn't do this, that they didn't realize that God is a God of love. He said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So Sheila had never found the love of God in that home. Isn't that tragic? Isn't it a shame that in a person's conscientiousness, to be very conscientious, he shouldn't realize the basis of salvation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We should say, oh, I see Calvary. I see the thief there beside Jesus. How much had, had the thief lived up to? But the free gift of salvation was offered to that man. It doesn't mean that we're to be disobedient. No, no. But it means we are to be obedient to the very philosophy. We should be obedient to the attitude and the life and the spirit of Jesus, which means humility, you see. An attitude of being uncritical, ungossipy, respecting God's children. Well, Sheila could hardly put up with it. She could hardly wait. Her parents made her dress in the most old-fashioned clothing. It seems that they could manufacture or hunt up. They, they made her wear her hair halfway down her back. They did everything that a Puritan would have done 200 years ago in an effort to be exactly right. Bless their hearts. But Sheila never saw, never sensed, never experienced a love of God who loves us no matter what we are. Sinners and enemies, Jesus loved us. Romans 5, 8, and 10. So as soon as Sheila was old enough, she left home, went away from home, and went to a, an academy where nobody knew her. She said, now nobody can, can look down upon me. I'm going to start my life all over again. I've made a mess of, of my life. I'll start all over again. And there in this new educational center, she started all over again. She had not been getting good grades because she felt so inferior, all the while being, being high-pressed, pressured by her parents. You know, my friends, it's an awful thing for parents to high-pressure the children to get A grades. And if you don't get an A grade, there's something wrong with you. Oh, friends, I'd rather have an A grade in the attitude of Jesus Christ than all the A grades in the world. And we're not belittling A grades. Let them know we love them no matter what grade they get. Let them know Jesus Christ loves us no matter how we've messed things up. This is the religion of Jesus Christ. So she started all over again. She cut her hair. She changed her attire. She looked modern and found a boyfriend. <laughs> she married this boy, Roy, and they were getting along fairly well together. But as the years came and went, Roy was called away a distance to work. And Sheila began to, to whimper, you aren't spending enough time with me. And you know what happens? When one party to the marriage whimpers, demanding more companionship, you know what they get? Less. Because who wants to be around a whimperer? Nobody. Nobody wants to be around a whimperer a person who is demanding attention, who's demanding love, who's demanding companionship. 
And so the more she demanded, the less she got. Finally, one, as he would come home, by the way, at night, every time she would just take him on. And finally, he decided that he wouldn't come home so much. And then it dawned over her that she was about ready to lose her home. So she said to herself, I'm now going to straighten him up right now. She said, listen here, you can have your wedding ring. I never should have married you anyway. He said, fine, that is the end. And then she realized that she'd blown her marriage. At that time, she made a, a very, perhaps a 200-mile trip, maybe 250-mile trip to see us. She told us of this experience. She said, my home is shattered now. Husband is threatening to end it all. He still does come home a little. But she said, can you tell me how to rebuild my home? I've made a mess of things. Yes, we said, we can. In fact, God has already told us. We'll just share with you his rules. And so we shared with her seven secrets of family communication. And God has said that if we'll follow his rules, we shall have days of heaven upon the earth. That is Deuteronomy 11, 18 to 21. Imagine, can you imagine a marriage in these days with heaven on earth? He said it would be. So I said, now, but the condition is that we will learn his spirit, his attitude, one of which is humility. I said, now, she said, what shall I do? Well, you'll do what the Lord said. You know, this is the guidebook. This is the marriage manual, if you please, as well as a soul-winning manual, as well as a doctrinal manual, as well as a salvation manual. So you'll go back and you'll follow the command of James 5.16. You'll say to your husband, Roy, I'm so sorry for the attitude I've taken. I've belittled you, I've whimpered, I've made demands, and I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And not merely will you do that, but then you'll take on this attitude of the mind of Jesus, Philippians 2, 5 to 9. Let this mind be in you, not just spasmodically, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation. You will submit to your husband. You will never tower over him. You'll always take the submissive attitude, and as you do it, you won't submit like a mule submits. You know, who likes a mule bray? <laughs> but you'll submit winsomely, sweetly, kindly, joyfully, believingly. And we spent about an hour in counseling after she told her story. She made the long trip back home. A few days later, she returned. She said, Pastor and Mrs. Goon, you have no idea what already is happening to my home. She said, you know, since I've taken this humble attitude and I've just shown a good, simple, casual respect, I haven't gone all out saying you're God or anything like that because he isn't but I've shown a good, healthy respect for my mate. She said, already things are changing so rapidly. I'm just amazed. We said, you know, that's what God said. He said, if we would follow his rules, 
we would have days of heaven upon the earth in this old wicked and perverse world in which we live. Think of a joy program. You don't have to murmur. You don't have to quarrel anymore. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, <laughs> that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine. You shine as lights in the world. So don't take an abject humility attitude. Don't take the attitude, I'm going to be a worm and you can step on me. Oh, no, no. I'm a child of God, but you are a child of God. And you're the head of this home. And she said, I can hardly believe my very eyes and my very ears at what is happening. We encouraged her greatly. We thanked the Lord for the change that was taking place. That home was being rebuilt almost fantastically. She may have returned three times, giving the wonderful, wonderful report of progress. And then we received a letter. Dear Pastor and Mrs. Kuhn, I have gone to see a worker in the church and I've shared with him the experiences of my life. I've also explained to him what you presented to me of the humble attitude that I should take. And this Christian worker said, Sheila, that's the farthest from the way you should handle this situation. You should really take the bull by the horns. Don't think that you've got to respect this man. She said, and, and more than that, brother and sister Kuhn, I'm tired of being humble anyway. And so I've decided that I shall not return. You can imagine, friends, that we weren't surprised when we got a report a little later that her home was destroyed. You know, <clears throat> Jesus Christ is Christianity. Christianity is Christ. Jesus told us what to do. And our natural natures don't like to respect others. We naturally want to be on top of the heap. And that is Luciferism. Lucifer said, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. Nobody can rule over me. And he made himself into a devil. And you know, I have found thousands upon thousands of professed Christians who refuse to accept the humility of Jesus Christ. I think of, of homes where we've been in, and somebody sits down and they start relating an experience, something like this. I tell my boy Jimmy, who goes to school, <clears throat> I say, Jimmy, Jimmy, listen now, don't you ever pick a quarrel with another boy. Don't you do it. But Jimmy, if a boy jumps on you, don't let up until he's a grease spot. <laughs> and then they go to church next Sabbath and sing, Love divine, all love excelling. I sure put him in his place. <laughs> and never once do does it dawn over these professed Christians that this is not Christianity. This is Luciferism in the name of Jesus Christ. My favorite author who taught me more 
about the rules of communication than all other authors combined has made a statement like this. Sanctimony, spiritual pride, the holier-than-thou attitude is the most incurable of all the sins of humanity. Isn't that something? People who are guilty of social sins, they will come to the foot of the cross with the tears rolling down their cheeks and say, oh God, I failed you. I've done wrong. I'm wicked. Cleanse me, Lord. But the sanctimonious saint who said, you know, you aren't doing right. You're wearing pants. And I don't like it. Goes to church and said, I am so much better than anybody else. Lord, thank you for looking at me. Never dawning over them that sanctimony, spiritual pride, walking on stilts as a Christian is the most incurable of all sins of humanity today. This is what caused Lucifer to be a devil and to be cast out of heaven. Oh, shouldn't we do what God says? Seek meekness, all you meek of the earth. That is all who think we're meek. It may be you will be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Shall we not do it? And now, my friends, how does a sinner come to Jesus? If we confess our sins, see, we bow in humble submission. We say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've sinned. Forgive me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's how we go back to our home justified and drinking in salvation. But if we take the attitude of the Pharisee, Lord, I thank you. I'm a real vegetarian, and I'm going to practice health reform if it kills me. Let us ask God to make us like Jesus. Shall we do it? Dear Lord in heaven, as I look into my life, I find so many times I've been out of place. I thank you, Lord, that you've forgiven me. And as you have forgiven me, oh, Lord, thank you for forgiving my fellow Christians to whom the Holy Spirit may have been speaking during this session, saying, humble yourself also before the Lord. Humble yourself before your friends. Come down off of that high peak of selfishness. Lord Jesus, we endeavor to do it. And Father, right now, there may be a soul right here in this audience or viewing this program who came in without the assurance of forgiveness and in the heart is saying, Lord, I'm not worthy, but through Jesus, I accept your cleansing. I accept your salvation. May that soul receive you now in simple faith. If you're one of those, would you lift your hand? Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name for hearing and accepting. Amen. God bless you. And now for our questions and answers. But first, shall we seek the Lord for his wisdom? Dear Lord, you have said, as recorded in 1 Corinthians 1.30, that Christ is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We need all of these gifts from you at this hour. We believe you're hearing. We believe you are with us. Oh, how we need your presence, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The first question says, uh, what you are teaching about humility is in the Bible, 
but I just can't seem to follow the command of 1 Peter 3. Please help. Bless your heart. You know, as I have read this command through many decades, I've come to the conclusion that what you've said is absolutely right. You and I cannot do it. Paul said, the thing that I would do, I can't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And then, looking to Jesus, he said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. You see, in Jesus, there's all power in heaven and earth. And as we look to him and ask him to impart his power, his grace, his strength, then we can say, Lord, you've said, it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And we can in turn exultantly say, I can do all things through Christ. Claim his promises, dearly beloved, for all your worth. There's not one of us that can do what God has commanded except as we open our hearts to the presence, to the life, and to the love of Jesus Christ. And he will supply it. He said, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him. Friends, there is hope, there is strength, there is life, there is victory in Jesus. You've told us that we can pray for anything that is according to God's will. How do we know what God's will for us individually is? God's will is found in his word. You see, in the 40th Psalm, verses 6 to 8, it says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is in my heart. God's will is found in his word. Whatever he has promised us is his will, you see. He promises us a new heart, and that's a gift. We need the new heart. He promises the new heart so we can reach up in simple faith and know that whatever he promises us is his will. I've heard you uh, refer to texts of scriptures such as Philippians 2.3 and 1 Peter 2.17, in which I am to honor others. But how can I honor an alcoholic husband? It seems so difficult. There must be something wrong somewhere. You know, friends, aren't we human? You know, who wants to be around individuals that are, are besotted, if you permit the expression? Who enjoys the foul breath, you see, of individuals that are, that are in this state? Surely, we're not supposed to like it. But you know, God doesn't like a lot of things that we do, but aren't you glad that he loves us? In Romans 5, verses 8 and 10, it says, while we're enemies, God gave his son. While we're sinners, he gave his son to die for us. So actually, we honor people not because what they're doing is honorable, but we honor them on two or three bases. One is, Jesus has shown the worth of the soul in giving his son, in giving himself, in shedding his blood for us. This shows the value of this soul. Jesus has honored humanity to such an extent that if only one soul were saved, we say it many times, if only one soul were saved, he would have shed his precious blood. That shows the tremendous value that he places on a human soul. So an alcoholic husband, 
is one for us to honor because he's the purchase of the blood of Jesus Christ. And thus, we will cooperate with the Lord, we'll cooperate with the holy angels, we'll cooperate with the Holy Spirit in bringing to him the love of Jesus Christ. When we know that uh, people are doing wrong, asks this questioner, are we supposed to stand by and say nothing in order to obey the law of choice? What about the Lord telling Isaiah to cry aloud and spare not? That's a very, very sincere question. The general law of communication means that we will not be picky, see? We won't be picky. And this is what we have been trying to present in our meetings, in our services, in our question-answer services. Don't be picking on people. There are exceptions, and they are rare and they're important. The exception of the rule is just as important and just as sacred and just as necessary as the rule. For instance, when I was a little boy going to public school, I picked up a bad word, and it was H-E-L-L. -L. And I used it at the wrong time in the wrong places. The Bible talks about hell, but I used it as a slang expression. And I had become so accustomed to hearing the boys out in the public school using it that, amazing as it may seem, though I never used it around father and mother, when I was all alone, I did. I was in a berry patch with my oldest brother, and one of those berry briars pierced me, and out came that word. My older brother, in the sweetest, most wholesome, the kindest way, turned to me and he said, Glenn, are you sure? that you wanted to say that word. And he said it in such a way that I knew he wasn't going to squeal on me. And immediately the Holy Spirit used that gentle word of reproof from my brother to bring me a sense of my great need. And I cried out to God for help. As far as I know, I've never used that word in a slang way since. So you see, there are times we're not always to sit by and say nothing, not at all. But what we're trying to convey is, God protect us from being picky Christians, from hammering and nagging and hammering and nagging, you see. The children are driven from the Lord by the parents constantly jumping on them for this and that and the other. It doesn't mean that there's never any place for reproof. The Bible says if your brother offends you, reprove him. If he repent, forgive him. Thank you for putting the question. The Bible says there will be a people sighing and crying for the abominations done in the land. How can a person sigh and cry for the abominations done in the land and still keep a humble spirit? Oh, thank you. Do you know that? That is a real problem, isn't it? I think one of the things that has blessed me the most in Scripture in regard to this, for I have fought the same battle that evidently the questioners who bring in this question are fighting. You're sighing and crying for the terrible sins, for the sensuousness of individuals, including professed Christians. I tell you, my friends, it breaks our hearts. We will go into agony. We'll plead with God, dear, deliver them, dear God. Please save your cause. But remember this. When Daniel, who was beloved of God, started pleading with God for the mistakes of Israel, you know what he said? 
I confessed my sins and the sins of my people. He didn't say, I said, Lord, look at the mistakes they're making. He said, Lord, we have transgressed. We have done wickedly. We don't deserve anything. He put himself right in the midst of it all. I confessed my sins and the sins of my people. If you'd read in the book of Nehemiah, you'll find the same attitude of Nehemiah. He didn't come up on stilts and climb up on these stilts and say, Lord, look at all the mistakes so many people are making, but I'm not doing it. Lord, I'm sorry for the mistakes I have made, for the wanderings and the backslidings I have engaged in, and with my people. Please have mercy on me and my people. That's the humble method of God's uh, command to us to sigh and cry for the abominations that we have committed as well as others. When Jesus confronted the hypocrites, he called them hypocrites. When we see Christian hypocrites, aren't we to expose them? You see, there, there are two or three classes in which we can find ourselves. One is, there are people who are tares. But Jesus said in the 13th chapter of Matthew that when the servants of the master said to the master, there are tares among the wheat. Let us go out and pluck up these tares. You remember what the master said? He said, don't do it. He said, because they're not ripe enough yet. Individuals don't realize that they're tares, and as you go out in plucking up the tear, the tares, you'll pluck up the wheat. So there is a point at which the hypocrisy is to be openly presented. When Jesus called those men hypocrites, he was able to point to chapter and verse of their hypocrisy. You'll notice in the 23rd chapter of the book of Matthew, he told exactly what they were doing, and the people that were listening knew exactly what they were doing. Now, you'll notice, he didn't point out individuals as such. He said, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. In general, he was pointing out what, uh, what hypocrisy consists of, you see, so that people would realize that when they see a man doing this, devouring widows' houses, and for a pretense making long prayers, when they saw men doing that, they would know that God is not honored by that life. They would know that whoever is engaging that is a hypocrite. We must be extremely careful, though. We may know of somebody in the church that's living an unworthy life. Other people may believe that person is perfect wheat. We must be extremely careful, lest in plucking up the tear, we pluck up the wheat also. I heard you share a text that indicates the wife should be in subjection to her husband. When I told my wife this, though I couldn't remember the text, she didn't like it and got mad. What was that text of scripture again so that I can prove it to her? <laughs> well, you might be surprised to know that before you read that text in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, beginning with the 19th verse, all of you be subject one to another. So the husband is to be subject to his wife and the wife is to be subject to her husband. But what the Bible is trying to say is, in the final decision, the chain of command is to be followed. And the wife is not supposed to treat her husband as though she were of the mother and he was a teenager. And you know, my friends, among the thousands of people 
that attend our meetings <clears throat> and come to us for counsel, we have found hundreds of beautiful Christian wives <clears throat> who, because they are more spiritual than their husband, have taken the attitude of a mother-child relationship. This is what the Bible condemns. Surely the husband is the head of the wife. The Bible says so. But he's not to be, and we repeat it many times, he's not to be the blockhead. This next question comes from a young person, Pastor Kuhn. It says, Dear Pastor, I'm a teenager, 15 years old. I've been a Christian just a year. The Fifth Commandment says that children should obey their parents. But my father is an atheist, and he's mean. How can I honor him? Number one, you'll honor him as the blood-bought heritage of Jesus Christ. Number two, you'll honor him in line of the chain of command in the home. Number three, by your taking an attitude of submission, you may lead him to the Lord. You see, when he sees in you the Spirit of Christ, he sees the love that he needs. You see, it's the love of Christ that constrains a man to give his heart to the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. As this father sees reproduced in a human being the love of Jesus Christ, by beholding he may become changed, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. You don't honor the vices, but you follow the chain of command and God richly rewards individuals who do this. Should a wife sit idly by and put up with a husband who gives her no companionship? <clears throat> this, is, this is a common problem in the home. You see, men are the supporters, largely and usually, the supporters of the home. Their whole, if they're really responsible individuals, their whole life, clusters around the determination to support the wife and the children. And it is easy for a man to become so absorbed in his work that he will neglect this companionship which his wife deserves. But while she does deserve it, she will not, as a rule, not once in a thousand times, ever receive it by demanding it. That's one of the paradoxes of life. She will receive this companionship as she presents to him an alluring attitude, you see. Now, 1 Peter, again, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, should be followed carefully by Christian wives. As she is kind and submissive and meek and sweet, he longs more to be around her in spite of the oppressiveness of the work in which he's engaged. But if she is whimpering and whining and demanding, you see, he wants to create a greater distance. So try to use Christ's methods. Thank you. What should a Christian do when you're in a financial mess? Is it right to go bankrupt? If I don't, we're apt to starve. There are some promises in the Bible that are very vital. God doesn't say that a Christian should never go bankrupt. That's not found in the Bible. I have known of individuals who've been in a financial mess who have gone bankrupt. But they have said in their hearts, though I've gone bankrupt, I'm keeping a list of every individual whom I owe. 
and just as fast as the money comes in, I will pay them person by person. Now, they, legally, they have to be careful how they do that, too, because even though they've gone bankrupt, I'm told that if they make one payment, they become legally obligated for the whole to that individual. But there are ways to take care of that. You see, first of all, whatever we do, no matter what legal, uh, legal route we take, there's still a basic honesty that God expects of his children. And the Lord has promised in Philippians 4.19 to supply our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I know of no time in the human experience in which a person can be a better witness to the honesty that Jesus creates in the human heart than when he gets in a financial bind. This is a beautiful opportunity for him to reveal the fact that as God keeps his promises, so God's children will do everything within their power to keep their promises. Somebody has said, in fact, I've heard it repeated many times, particularly in the mountains where we live, that you can tell whether a man is a Christian by the way he conducts his business. And I believe there's much more to that than many people realize. Christianity and business can be a bright and shining light. There's a beautiful opportunity for us to witness to the fact that we believe in the integrity of Christianity. We believe in the honesty of Christianity. We believe in keeping our promises. How can we expect God to keep his? How can we have, how can we have confidence that God will keep his unless we do everything within our power to keep ours and then ask God to keep his promises so we can keep ours? Many of you have heard me relate the experience of when my wife and I needed $6,000 in order to keep our word. In great distress, in fact, in agony, I knelt before God again and again, and this was the argument that I placed in the ears of my Lord. I said, Dear Lord, you have put it into my heart to keep my word. And because you have put it into my heart to keep my word, I'm asking you to keep your word of Philippians 4.19 and supply my need. I believe, Lord, it's very important for me to keep my financial word. I don't want people to come around to me and say, you promised me at that such and such a date you'd pay me so much. You haven't even said a word. My friends, if a Christian finds that he is in a financial bind and cannot make a payment that's due on a certain date, he ought to get to that individual before that individual ever comes to him and say to that individual, I'm sorry, something has happened. Will you be merciful? Will you be patient with me? Because I'm determined under God to keep my word to the best of my ability. Then reach out and claim his promises. This uh, next questioner wrote a rather long question. Let me see if I can't cut it down <laughs> and paraphrase it myself. The questioner is uh, employed in selling religious books and materials door-to-door, uh, -door. but he or she feels that the method that they have been taught in getting into the home is deceptive. And they feel called to the Lord to present the gospel through these books and materials, but they just conscientiously don't feel they can continue using these deceptive, what they feel are deceptive methods. What do you think they should do since the company or the firm uh, advocates this method? Number one, don't you thank God, friends, that there are people still in this world who are determined under God 
to obey the conscience which God has placed in them. You know, the Bible talks about a seared conscience. When I was in school, one of the speakers that I enjoyed listening to the most would often make this statement, keep your conscience sharp. Keep your conscience sharp. My friends, thank the Lord for people who are asking this question. That's number one. Number two, the Lord says in Romans 12, 21, and we quote it many times, overcome evil with good. So instead of, uh, and I'm sure that those who've put in this question have in mind this, instead of uh, making a tirade against your superiors, you will, you will ask God to give you wisdom. James 1, 5. Psalm 32, 8. By the way, Psalm 32, 8, we haven't quoted for quite a while. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with mine eye. Isn't that beautiful? So you'll ask God to teach you how to overcome this uh, negative situation with good. And as you pray, remember to follow the ABCs. Let me give you the philosophy of the ABCs of prayer. All right. You're asking God to give you wisdom, James 1, 5. You're asking God to give you guidance, Psalm 32, 8. Now, as you ask him to give you this wisdom, this guidance, what are you doing when you ask? You're saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. When you say, I believe, that's a B of prayer. When you say, I believe, you're saying, Lord, I can snuggle right up in a complete trust in you. When you say, Lord, thank you that I've received, that's how you use the C, the claim, thank you I've received, you go into the philosophy of thinking, Lord, you are revealing it to me. And though I may not sense it at this instant, at the time I need it most, you will reveal to me the better way than what I'm using now in approaching these homes. And expect God to do something fabulous. Ephesians 3.20, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Praise the Lord. Do you believe Jesus is soon to return? And if so, do you think it is too late in the world's history to take an advanced course in education? I believe that Jesus' return is very near. I believe we are now on the borders of the eternal world. I believe the text of Scripture that says, Behold, I come quickly, is just right. It's so appropriate to this hour. But number two, he also says, Occupy till I come. When I was a little boy, my father and mother never thought that I would be old enough to go to school. When my wife and I had our first child, we never dreamed that she'd be old enough to go to school before Jesus came. Uh, when she was married and had her children, we never dreamed they would be old enough to go to school. Jesus says, occupy till I come. Suppose now that our father and mother had not sent us to school, believing that Jesus would come so soon, can you imagine what would happen to us? So we always blend the, the verses of Scripture, balance one with another. He is coming soon, but occupy till he comes. I remember some years ago, I was sitting in the home of an individual. He was now in midlife. He was very bitter against his parents. He said, they were so sure that Jesus was coming within a year or two that they didn't give me an education. I've had a very difficult time, he said, making my way in life due to my fanatical, and he underscored it, my fanatical parents. Jesus is coming. 
we should live every day as though it were our last day. But we should live every day as though we had a whole lifetime ahead. Occupy till I come, but remember that in an hour that you think not the Son of Man coming. Do we have another you, question? Yes, and the last question for this session is a kind of a personal question to you, uh, Pastor Kuhn. Oh. What is your favorite Bible promise? <laughs> you may be surprised. It would be like, uh, like Brother Steve's answer the other day. A lady walked up to him and said, What is your favorite pie? He said, Whichever. <laughs> Whichever. My favorite promise, I have no favorite promise above others. Because my favorite promise in a, for financial need is Philippians 4.19 or Matthew 6.33. That's the financial need. My favorite promise for bad thoughts that the devil brings to me, my favorite promise for that is 1 John 3, 1-3, particularly that part that says, we shall be like him. And as the devil suggests thoughts that are not good to my mind, I will often lift up my heart and say, we shall be like him. Jesus would never think this thought. Thank you, Jesus. You're making me like you. That is my favorite promise for thoughts. There are other promises for thoughts, too, like 2 Corinthians, uh, the 10th chapter and the 4th and 5th verses. Casting down imagination, bringing the captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. But I found that that promise, to me, is not as strong as the one in 1 John 3, 1 to 3, because 1 John 3, 1 to 3 gives me a picture of the Lord making me like him. The other I've used sometimes almost legalistically. Lord, I'm going to bring into captivity every thought. And I find I can't bring into captivity every thought. But I found that Jesus can bring into captivity every thought, and he is the one that will make me like him. I have a very favorite promise that I claim for peace of mind. It is Isaiah 26, verse 3. It says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. I also have a, a favorite promise regarding the Holy Sabbath day. It says, You will remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is a promise of the Lord. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. So, my favorite promise has to do with which promise seems to be the most appropriate for the hour. And now may you claim God's promises as we pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for these sincere questions which have come in. We realize, Lord, that we become partakers of the divine nature, as you've said in 2 Peter 1:4, as we drink in of the promises which are really the life of Jesus Christ. Thank you for blessing us as we do it. In the precious name of Jesus our Lord, amen, and God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.